you're new with us, we are working our way through uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, yeah, yeah, there we go, there we go. Uh, Alex is messing with me back there. Uh, if you're new with us, we're going through the Gospel of Luke, uh, verse by verse, and uh, we're in what some call the Sermon on the Plain, uh, which occupies chapter 6 uh, of this Gospel. And uh, it all began when Jesus uh, went up on a mountain to pray, and he pulled an all-nighter, um, spending time uh, with the Father, and then selected his apostles, and then descended from the mountain to a level place, and there uh, proceeded to give a sermon to those apostles, to some other followers, and a great multitude that had assembled. And Jesus essentially is teaching uh, about what it means to be his disciple. And so we looked at in week one, uh, those blessings and woes, as Jesus described that authentic discipleship uh, involves a reversal of values, that uh, disciples value things the, the world doesn't, and we, we look forward to that great reward uh, that is coming to those who have followed him. And then we looked at the next section, which uh, nobody really liked, which was loving our enemies, uh, as Jesus described that uh, remarkable kind of life that we are to live as those who emulate our Father who is merciful. And then last week, we looked at how Jesus described this, this disposition that we should embody of not being judgmental, but being forgiving and being generous. And now it all comes to a conclusion with two analogies, fruit-bearing trees and a well-built house. And like a good sermon, I guess, Jesus at the end calls for a decision. Basically to this massive group of people asking them, do you really want to be my disciple? And he uh, ties it up really well at the end by showing us what it means to be an authentic disciple of his. And the words are, are challenging, but I want to remind you that they come from Jesus, and therefore they are filled with divine wisdom, and they come from a place of love, right? Jesus says in this passage, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And there is no corruption in the heart of Jesus. Everything he says is for our good. And it's coming from that, that heart of love and grace, wanting to change us. And so let's pray that we could receive his word with meekness and bear fruit as a result. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for all that we have learned up to this point in this great sermon of our Lord. And I pray right now you would open up our hearts and our minds to behold wonderful things from your word and that your word would, would, would bear fruit in our lives, in our day-to-day -day lives, that we would prove to be Jesus' disciples by how we love one another and by how we display fruit to your glory. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. You know, counterfeiting items like uh, fashion items has become a very widespread problem today. Uh, you're often warned about ordering things, for example, on Amazon. Um, and one of the most popular counterfeited items today is Rolex watches. Uh, according to one report, it was searched for online 228,000 times uh, last year. I'm not sure how many Rolex watches we have at Imago Day. Um, and if you have one, I think you've got to ask the question, are you sure? Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe it was purchased in Manhattan for 30 bucks. Uh, and, and maybe that family member was not as generous as you might first imagine. Um, Louis Vuitton bags are popular counterfeited items, as are Gucci belts uh, and fake Crocs, uh, which some call Croc-offs, uh, knock-off Crocs. 
And uh, these counterfeited problems uh, continue to be uh, real, real problems, counterfeited items through, throughout uh, the world today in the world of, of commerce. And Jesus is asking the question with these two analogies, are you sure you're the real thing? He doesn't want us to be knockoff disciples, but real, genuine disciples. As again, he's speaking to this large group of people, and he essentially tells us two simple marks of authentic disciples. First of all, authentic discipleship comes from the heart. And secondly, authentic discipleship is displayed in obedience. So what does that mean? Well, notice verse 43. Jesus says first with this analogy, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. The word for is linking up to the previous part of the sermon. And so I think it's important that we, we keep what he said up to this point in mind. Specifically, as we think about what does it look like to bear good fruit? Well, that would entail some of the things he's already mentioned. And what would it look to, to bear bad fruit? That would look like the things he's, he's already mentioned. And he uses this common analogy that's uh, used throughout Scripture of, of a fruit tree. Great passage in John chapter 15 that if we abide in the vine, we, as we are the branches, we bear much fruit. For apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That the Christian life is about union with Jesus Christ, communion with Jesus Christ, and bearing, a, bearing fruit as a result of our union with Jesus Christ. Paul prays that the Philippians would bear fruit in Philippians chapter 1. And here Jesus emphasizes uh, in this analogy uh, our nature, right? As he says, the real issue is your, what kind of tree are you? He addresses who we really are. And he says that we will bear fruit in correspondence to our nature. For a good tree, we bear good fruit. For a bad tree, we bear bad fruit. That's not complicated, is it? And a tree, verse 44, is known by its fruit. Now, I don't know much about trees. My golf balls tend to find them uh, regularly. Um, but Kimberly and I were at Home Depot a few weeks ago. We were doing a bit of landscaping in the back. And uh, they had fruit trees. And there was an apple tree and a cherry tree and, and some other fruit trees. And because there was no fruit yet on these trees that you would go home to plant, if I didn't have the stickers telling me what kind of tree it was, I would have no idea uh, the difference in these trees. But when apples appear, then all of a sudden you're a tree expert. Like, that's an apple tree. Um, <laughs> uh, when we lived in Louisiana, we had a lemon tree. That was a great tree. I miss that tree so bad. Um, and and I, I, was, I was a genius because I knew, that, I knew that was a lemon tree because there were lemons on it. Um, and Jesus says here, you will know what kind of tree a person is by what kind of fruit that they yield. That our, in other words, our outer actions reveal who we really are, whether or not we are authentic disciples. So it's a call to self-examination. Now, Paul, in a different context, in Galatians 5, uses this to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says the works of the flesh are evident, and it's all of that list of sins that Paul gives. But the fruit of the Spirit looks like love, sacrificial love. It looks like joy, even in sorrow. It looks like peace when we're afraid. It looks like patience in times of hardship. It looks like acts of kindness and goodness when you don't want any, you have no expectation of return. It's marked by faithfulness in difficulty gentleness when you're tempted to be harsh 
It's marked by self-control. This is what the Spirit of God does in our lives. The Spirit of God produces in us the character of Jesus Christ. As that fruit of the Spirit is really a character sketch of Jesus. How do we know we're his disciples? We look like him. <laughs> we don't yield it perfectly in this life. Doesn't mean we're sinless, of course. Nor does all of this a fruit appear all at one time. But gradually and consistently, we bear fruit. That's what a Christian does because a Christian has become a new tree. We're not good, but by God's grace, he transforms us so that we bear good fruit. And that would mean things like loving our enemies, not being judgmental, but being forgiving and generous and so on, all the things that Jesus has taught us up to this point. And so he says the real issue, verse 45, is the heart. The heart. The good person, out of his good treasure, he calls the heart a treasure, out of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil tre treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the issue is the heart. See, fruit is not a work. We shouldn't take Jesus' sermon here and say, well, you know, I need to go do some stuff to prove to be a disciple. What we should ask is, do I have the heart? Because if we have the right heart, we will bear fruit. Right? You, you can't staple an orange onto an apple tree and say, see, I've got it. It's an orange tree. It, you, it's a different nature that has to exist. Something new has to happen. We need to be a new tree. And when we're, we're made into this new tree, we bear fruit. And so Jesus says here, let's examine the roots. Let's examine your inner character. This is really fundamental to Christianity, isn't it? The heart. The heart. The heart is, is like the control center for the Christian life. It determines the direction I take, the decisions I make, which is why the author of Proverbs says, guard your heart, for out of it flows the spring of life. That's the real mark of a Christian. It's in the heart, isn't it? It's not, well, I was born into a Christian country. I grew up in a Christian home. I go to church. I was baptized. I was sprinkled. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. In this setting, the people could even brag, I heard Jesus preach. And Jesus says, tell me about your heart. Tell me about your heart. What we need is conversion. What we need is a new creation. What we need is regeneration. And that's what the prophets predicted would happen in the new covenant. Like Ezekiel says that God would give us a new heart. And by his spirit, we can now bear fruit. As John said previously in John, or Luke chapter 3, as he's preaching, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the means by which we experience that new heart, that transformation is through repentance. And there is fruit that flows from that transformation. And Jesus gives us an additional thing to be on the lookout for, and that is our words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So word problems are heart problems. Again, this doesn't mean we, ever say, we never say anything evil or wrong or sinful. We will still struggle with the old self until we see Jesus Christ. But now we repent of those sins, and now we don't want to commit those sins because Jesus has changed our want-tos. He's changed our desires. And out of this new creation that he's made us as Christians, we now speak. Our behavior changes when our heart changes. We often give a lot of attention to behavior, and, and rightly so, but, but really what we really want is for a person's heart to be changed because we know that will change 
literally everything. I've used the analogy before of a, a teenage boy who, who is transformed when he gets his first love. You could tell, you know, this teenager, let's call him Leonce. Hey, uh, Leonce, um, man, one, you ever thought about taking a shower? It's, I, I think you'd benefit from it. He, he's not interested in it. How about some uh, deodorant, Leonce? It was developed, you know, in recent history. I think um, it would benefit mankind if you would, you would use some deodorant. No, not interested. Leonce, some cologne, maybe just a little dab uh, would, would, would do you up well. He's not interested in that. He's not interested in washing your car or getting a job until he gets a girlfriend. And now all of a sudden, behavior has changed. Now all of a sudden, he takes a shower. Now all of a sudden, he's using deodorant. Now all of a sudden, he's using so much cologne that, that you can't light a match anywhere near his, his bedroom. Right? He, he wants to wash your car. He's got two jobs because he's got a new love. And it's amazing how behavior changes when one's heart changes. And that's what happens with Jesus Christ. When, when you love Jesus Christ, it changes how you view everything. Everything, doesn't it? That's happened, I'm sure, to many of you guys in marriage as well. I had no interest, for example, in watching a musical. I mean, how boring is that? Like, they just walk around singing to each other. Like, what kind of world is that? Um, until I married Kimberly, and now we have season tickets. We have season tickets. <laughs> Uh, I, I actually do look forward to it now. Um, I had no furniture, right? I had no, she's like, uh, honey, we need to get a, a dresser. I'm like, why? Why do we need a dresser? Um, I had a big trunk with my clothes, and the rest were hanging up. I had a futon on the ground. I had no bed, uh, plenty of books, no bed. Um, <laughs> seriously, no silverware, had a spork uh, from, from KFC. And um, all of that changed when I got a new love. It really does happen. I still have my style. She didn't do anything about that. But um, you see, the key issue that Jesus is getting at here fundamentally is with our loves. It's with our heart. I, I've always loved how Paul ends Ephesians. As he's blessing the church, he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. That's how he defines a Christian. It's people who love Jesus Christ. And out of that love comes everything else. For example, there's a great book called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. It's an old book. Donnie turned me on to this particular chapter this past week called Lovest Thou Me? And Ryle asked the question, how do you know if a person loves Jesus Christ? Which seems to be a very important question. And he just likens it to other relationships you would have in, in life. And here, here's his list. I think they're worth noting for our meditation before I move to point two here. And he says, if you love a person, you like to think about him or her, depending on the relationship here. You like to think about him. Secondly, if we love a person, we like to hear about him. And he says, a Christian likes to hear about Christ. Thirdly, if we love a person, we like to read about him. Fourthly, if we love a person, we like to please him. Fifth, if we love a person, we like his friends. You might find that one challenging, but get with me. It's number six, if we love a person, we are jealous about his name and honor. Seventh, if we love a person, we like to talk to him. Eighth, if we love a person, we always like to be with him. And he doesn't say, but I would add a ninth mark, ninth mark of a healthy love 
of Jesus. If you love a person, you want to talk about him, right? So do you love him? Are those things present in your life? What can happen is lesser loves can occupy our hearts. We call those idols. And those idols don't really love you. Those idols haven't done for you what Jesus Christ has done for you. And so allow God to change your heart and love him. It's not too late to start. Augustine, the great theologian of the church, was, was later in life when he became a Christian, and he writes in confessions, late have I loved you. Late have I loved you. Perhaps lesser loves have come in your heart. Jesus addresses the Ephesian church in Revelation 2, and he says, you've got good doctrine, you've persevered, but you've lost your first love. And he says, repent and return to that love. You see? And it's out of that love, then, that we bear fruit. We're not perfect, but we bear fruit. As Christians, we wait the day of redemption in which we will be perfect trees. There are no, no more temptation to give our loves to anything or anyone else. And until that day, we want to put sin to death. We want to repent of anything that we've held up in our hearts to be equal to Jesus Christ or superior to Jesus Christ. Ask God to renew our affections for Christ. Out of our hearts we, we talk, out of our hearts we live. Second uh, proof, authentic discipleship is not only something that comes from the heart, Jesus says it's then displayed in obedience. Verses 46 to 49, he uses these, uh, this analogy of, of two builders, but first ask the crowd this question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus is a master. Like We could have a whole, whole lecture here, I think, on what we learn from Jesus' teaching style. Right? And it's fascinating how simple this is. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do... So the problem is not calling him Lord, because he's Lord. That's actually an orthodox confession. Right? That's how we become a Christian, according to Paul, when he says in Romans 10, that if anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So do that. But it, it's not, that's not the problem. Nor is it a, a problem of, of lack of enthusiasm. Notice it's not, why don't you call me Lord? Why don't you call me, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And it's even a public declaration, which is also good. The problem is, it's an empty profession. It doesn't, it doesn't, obedience does not come with the confession. Therefore, the confession is contradictory to the life in the parallel text in Matthew 7, Jesus adds a layer, and he says, not only do some call me Lord, but they actually do things in my name. And he says, I will have to say to them on the last day, depart from me, I never knew you. Knowing him truly as Lord means that we display that love and that relationship with a life of obedience. And he explains what that looks like very plainly, doesn't he, in verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them I will show you what he's like. Notice those three verbs. We come to Jesus, we hear his word, and then we don't stop there, do we? We then go put it into practice. That's a great model for discipleship. It involves coming to Jesus, right? It involves hearing his word regularly and then putting it into practice. That's a good model of a church. People come to Jesus in evangelism, they hear his word in exposition, and then they live it out during the, the rest of the week. And so Jesus says, let me give you an analogy to show you the difference of what I'm, the, the distinction that I'm trying to point out with those who hear but don't put into practice. 
And he gives us these two images, of, uh, two stories of, of, of guys who build a house. He says, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. So, Jesus compares a fake follower and with a true follower with these two builders. So let's just kind of modernize it and, and put it up to, to our day. We'll, we'll take these two guys, we'll give them names. We, we'll take them as Ronnie and Johnny. Okay, Ronnie does the hard work of laying a solid foundation for his house. He buys the land, he gets all the permissions to build, but then for weeks, there's no house that's visible. Uh, and that is because he's digging down. And he digs down for weeks, and then eventually the cement man comes and pours the foundation, and then the house starts going up. Ronnie builds his house on a solid foundation. Johnny, on the other hand, he takes the easy way out. He builds without a foundation. He doesn't build, he doesn't dig down first. He starts building up, which in the first century tended to be a temptation, apparently. One commentator writes, soil in Palestine was often hard pan, tempting one to build on soil itself rather than investing the time, labor, and money in digging through the hard pan to lay the proper foundation. And so here, you've got Johnny, he's, he's been dreaming of his house also, he gets the land, he gets the permission, but then instead of digging down, he builds up. He, he's perhaps looking down his nose at Ronnie, saying, what, what a waste of time and energy and money. Who needs a foundation? But then, what happens? The storm came. And only one of them could put their feet up in peace. And that was the one who had built a solid foundation. Johnny's desperately trying to find sandbags and everything else to preserve his house, but it is destroyed by the flood. Before the storm, you could look at both houses, and they look very similar. If, if you were actually out to house hunting, and those houses were for sale, you would be tempted to, to look at both of them, and maybe you would even like Johnny's a bit better, and that's why you get an inspector, right? <laughs> The inspector comes in and says, do not buy this house. <laughs> it has no foundation. And Jesus is saying, outwardly, two people can look very similar. They can actually be in the same church, hear the same message, just as the crowd here is hearing the same message of Jesus, but they could be radically different individuals. One simply has a token acknowledgement of Jesus. And the other, though, has heard Jesus' word, been changed by it, and is putting it into practice. That's the person who is built on a rock. And everybody is building on something or someone. And the real test to know what we're built on is trouble. You know, when life is easy, sometimes it's hard to understand or see what a person's foundation is. But when the trouble comes... When the storm comes, then we find out. False faith cannot withstand a storm. 
Strong faith withstands the storm. Those that have been built on Jesus Christ can withstand opposition, persecution, trial, grief, loss. It's like a, one of the guys that Joel was telling me about in Ukraine, a pastor, he's, he's on the border of Russia. And his church is, is giving supplies, food and medical supplies from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. every day, just being bombarded with need. And before then and during that time of giving these supplies, they're sharing the gospel, they're having church service and, and uh, record attendance. Uh, the, uh, the pastor reported 30 professions of faith have happened uh, during this, this crisis. He's built on a rock. And as we dig down deep in the scriptures, day by day, as we gather together, digging down deep, we know that one day, and we don't know when it is, big storms are coming our way. Those who've been built on Jesus Christ can withstand the storm. We can withstand the storm. We keep coming to Jesus, hearing Jesus, and in putting into practice the words of Jesus. And that way we don't have to fear the storms that come. And in saying this, Jesus here is making a claim to deity, not just calling himself Lord, but saying that we have to build our lives on him. We have to build our lives on his word. Who else would say that? Only God can say that. And that's what he's doing in this moment. Uh, Phil Ryken tells a story of this house that was built in Scotland in 1770. Uh, a guy named Thomas Hill left his little cottage, took with him a pick, a chisel, a hammer, and a desire to build a solid home. And he built a home into a rocky face of a cliff overlooking a valley. It took him 16 years to build. And eventually it was a magnificent fortress. But it came with time and energy. And that is the same with our spiritual lives. It costs us something to build on the rock. Right? It takes discipline to study the Bible, to pray, to, to put sin to death, to obey Jesus' word when it's not popular. But it's worth it because the storm's coming to everybody. And the only person that can withstand this storm when it violently beats upon us is the person that has been built on Jesus Christ. And that's why we sang the song earlier, right? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you? He hath said to you who for Jesus for refuge have fled. Or my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground. And all other ground, Jesus is saying, is sinking sand. Don't build on a false foundation. Build on Jesus Christ. The guy who wrote, by the way, uh, that hymn on Christ the Solid Rock, Edward Mote, wrote these words as a new Christian. First time they were ever saying, he was visiting a married couple. The wife was on the deathbed. And he pulls out of his pocket this folded up piece of paper. And there, in that context, they sang, On Christ the Solid Rock, I Stand. Some 20 years later, he became a Baptist minister and the church was able to buy a church building for the con new congregation. They wanted to put the deed in his name, and he says, I do not want the chapel. I only want the pulpit. And when I cease to preach Christ, put me out of it. His man had learned the simplicity of where real security is. It's in Christ alone. In Christ alone. We want to build on that foundation. And how, how could we not follow this Christ? How could we not follow his word? This one who, in his incarnation, came to us with grace. 
And here he speaks this word on this level place to this multitude, but later he will speak from a cross, saying it is finished. No one has ever said that to us. Jesus Christ has. Then after his resurrection, he appears to his disciples and he says, peace be with you. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And now he speaks from a throne. And one day he will come again with power and glory and we will hear him speak. He is the one who says, build your life on me. This is the only worthy foundation for us to build our lives upon. There was a famous Scottish preacher named Arthur John Gossip. Unfortunate name for a preacher, uh, I must say, a gossip. But he'd experienced the, the tragic and untimely death of his beloved wife. Deeply grieved, he went away for a season, returned back to the pulpit, and he preached a sermon called, When Life Tumbles In, What Then? And this is what he told his church. I love it. I don't think, he says, we need to be afraid of life. Our hearts are very frail, and there are places where the road is very steep and very lonely. But we have a wonderful God. And as Paul puts it, what can separate us from his love? Not death, he says immediately, pushing that aside at once as the most obvious of all impossibilities. No, not death. And then he says to his church, For I standing here in the roaring of the Jordan, cold to the heart with its dreadful chill, and very conscience of the terror of its rushing, I can call back to you, who one day in your time will have to cross it too. Be of good cheer, my friend, for I feel the bottom, and it is sound. I feel the bottom, and it is sound. There is only one foundation that we can truly put our feet on when death comes our way, and it's coming our way. Can you say, I feel the bottom, and it's sound, because I have built my life on Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his great grace, offers this to us. This truth is not hidden from us today. It's revealed to us today. And so let's not settle for some false foundation. Let's build our lives on Jesus Christ. Let's not fake discipleship, but let's let Jesus change our heart and our affection that we bear much fruit to his glory and show the world what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word, and I pray that would be true of us, that we would build our, our lives on no one else, nothing else, than our Savior, Jesus Christ, giving us this great hope and assurance that we've looked at today. I pray even this week you would cause us to bear much fruit and glorify you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray that the marks of love would be evident in our lives this week. We thank you for what you have done for us to make all of this possible through your death, resurrection, great salvation we have experienced. And we think on that now in the Lord's Supper. And we pray that you would receive the worship you deserve from your people today as we uh, experience it. And we pray this in your good name. Amen.